Hi, is that Andy Stanton? Yeah, hi. Who's this? It's me, Richard Shepard, from the uh, from the Constant Reader podcast. Richard, Sh- Sh- who? Richard Shepard from the Constant Reader podcast. A, a few months ago, we we banded together to to figure out the novel It once and for all. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I I, re- I remember. I do. Listen, Andy, it's not over. You're kidding. How is it not? We discussed it for two hours, Richard. It's come back. And will you come back to Derry with me? We can lay it to rest this time. We're, we're, we're older now. We're wiser. We're older. It was two months ago. We're, we're older. Andy, it's time to come back. <laughs> I've got a bunch of books to write. I don't know how I can get it. Come on. Okay, I promised. I, pr- I promised. Uh, I'm in. Okay. Thank you. here but um what did you think about my the point that i i kind of wanted to make last time bill denborough is meant to be the the hero of it i think he's the leader of the losers club he's mm. everybody refers mm. to him as being the 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 um the hero he's, he's like um richie compares him to john f kennedy at one point and they all say they all look up to him. He's big bill i mean did he work for you both as the, the hero of the book, and also as another one in this long line of Stephen King creating a character who's an author, who has issues, who has to kind of confront the darkness. Because, I mean, we've seen that so many huh. times in his work. Well, okay, my first thing is that he absolutely works for me as Big Bill because, uh, you know, as we said last time, I just think all of the characters are really well drawn. The funny thing is, though... He's he's not my favourite by any means, and he's actually mm-hmm. in some ways sort of a little bit. You say in sometimes I take Bill a bit more on trust than some of the other characters. Um, How like, so? Because you hear a lot about other characters sort of saying, "Yes, Big Bill will handle this," or "Big Bill is good." There's something good. Uh, you hear it through other people's voices a lot, and it, in fact, Bill himself is very uncomfortable with being endowed with these characteristics. He's frequently uncomfortable as a child and an adult in being the leader. And he's, you know, there's a couple of references to it sort of saying um, in some way he couldn't, would never understand he had become their leader. And so you sort of go, it's like the, it's the other characters faith in him that makes him big Bill. And I actually don't find him in some ways. He's defined by other people's outlines more than himself, but I love him like I love them all. I, 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 he, he's more of a feeling for me than a character in some ways. He's just a, um, he's a solid pair of hands and he, he does always do the right thing. But again, as a, it's interesting, I think about this as well. Like with Richie, you can see his through line as being, a, you know, what they call a goof off or whatever, a, a jokester, a prankster. And he turns into the um, radio personality and Ben's always building stuff and Eddie's a compass mm. and Mike's a keeper of his uh, of history and Beverly Bill becomes the right 
Well, Beverly, yeah, I mean, she, even Beverly, I mentioned last time, is you, you always see that she's got, she's done something to her clothes, although, you know, I would say that's less important to the, um, to the losers, uh, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't help them that, that Beverly can embroider, she's also a, you know, a crack shot, that does help her, but, but basically her character is woven into, no pun, into her as a child, but with Bill, although he becomes a writer, and you sort of hear from Stephen King sometimes that, oh, Bill always was good at telling stories. You very rarely see it, actually. Mm. You don't see it like Gordy. Is it Gordy Lachance in The, um, Stand by me, the, the body. body or Stand yeah. By Me? It, he, he, he's the writer, isn't he, Gordy? He's the one who tells the story of Lardass, right? Mm-hmm. And frequently when you see writer characters in other Stephen King books, they do write. Bill has a couple of moments of writerly instinct and insight. Mm. For instance, when Bev is talking about, um, as an adult, Bev is saying, oh, sure, we took tests to see if we if there was anything wrong, why we couldn't, pregnant, be, couldn't get pregnant. Sud- suddenly, Bill, as an astute observer of people, realises that, okay, her husband, Tom, didn't take the tests because he was too disdainful. Yeah. There can't be anything wrong with the sacred sacks. <laughs> so he got an insight. But that's it's very rare that you actually see Bill's, um, you know, much lauded talent of being a writer inherent in him. As a, You don't see it. He doesn't do much writing. It reminded me a lot a of... Um, or, or much storytelling. Yeah, Ben Mears in Salem's Lot as well, who is supposed to be writing this book about the Marston House, but he never actually kind of really gets down to it. It's all again, like yeah. all like Jack Thompson, yeah. the Shining. He's meant to be writing a book about. He wants to write a book about the Overlook Hotel, but he never actually gets down to it because it's all about. Ah, uh, but 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 then that me. is all about. But Jack Torrance gets down to procrastinating from a book. But Jack Torrance has writer's block, which is something valid for a writer to have, right? Mm. But Bill just doesn't seem. Again, I would say that. You hear a lot from the narrator, uh, from Stephen King, and from other characters in the book about what is what Bill is and what Bill does. And he's funnily enough, I think he is more told than shown. Whereas Mm. Richie is totally show don't uh, show not tell, and all the other characters are. Bill is an article of faith in this book, which actually weirdly mirrors what he is for the losers. He's their rock. So I, I, I. I'm not saying he's a badly drawn character. I'm just saying he's a little bit more ineffable than the others, even though by the uh, he's meant to be the solid rock. It's a weird thing. It's it's fascinating you say that because the first time, and I'd have to check this in the book itself. The first time you actually see Bill, you see him through the eyes of Georgie. Yes, and Georgie is obviously in throes of hero worship, and he is like um, he's a big brother, he's a friend, he's a parent, he's kind of everything to this mm. kid, and he even talks about the idea that. Georgie talks more about Bill writing than Bill does, you know? He says that he can make people see things. He's often seen through other people's prisms. Exactly. No, that's a very good point. It is interesting. He's, it's also interesting to me that um, Bill is, I think I mentioned this again, Bill is the only character from The Losers that you see. Uh, it, all of the other characters are presented as adults first in the story, except for Bill. Mm-hmm. So, like, he's a funny thing. He's a real solid through line for the novel, but he's also he's also defined by negative space. Mm. He's a he's a the absence of Bill, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But then, but but it sounds like I'm saying he's sketchy and he's not because there are he he, he one one of my favourite little vignettes in the book is as an adult when he has a conversation with this kid on a skateboard. 
uh, and you know they he just sort of gets philosophical with him about Derry and you find you know you find out what it's like to be a kid in 1985 Derry with the curfew going on through this kid and that little relationship with Bill on and the kid on the skateboard and and that really warms me to Bill and then also the coda at the end with Audra and Silver mm. so it's not like he's not it's not like there's not red meat with Bill in the book there is do you think but it's, he get he Maybe a case of the book is a, and this is going to sound very pretentious. So I apologize. No, no, go for it. That's what we're here for, isn't it? The book is an attempt to actualize Bill because he's, like you say, he's seen through other people to begin with, but at the end he has that last word. He is the dreamer who wakes up. Oh, I love that. Who kind of redeems his wife. That's great from the, from the monster, and then wakes up yeah. at the end and becomes like a, a proper person. It's. A, I will give you that. I do think he, that's lovely. That uh, an attempt to actualize Bill. Yeah, I mean that's right. He's the and he actualizes himself because he's the one who uh, uh, they they all help him actualize himself. Mm. He's the one who drives the entire hunting and chasing of it. It's Bill's quest, isn't it? It's mm. Bill. Bill leads the charge because Bill has the personal connection because of Georgie. Absolutely. But you're right. It in the end he has to father himself. Yeah, on the bike, and there's a, there's a lot about right at the end. There's some really pretty writing right at the end of it when he's waking up from that with when he's waking up Audra with that bike ride, and there is something about you know you can only become an adult once the child has given birth to the adult, something like that. It's really nice. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? That it, it does end with like it was kind of all a dream. You know, he wakes up and he. Oh, it, I don't. No, no, it, it, it's not all a dream. No, it, it's no, it's a rite. That's the rite of passage. Sure, yeah. but it's, but it, but it's being, it's a rite of passage in a supernatural Stephen King world. So it does. There is some dreamlike quality to it. Mm. But you know, there's a dreamlike quality to all life. I can't. Really, I, there has been uh, last year. Yeah, this this past year, it's definitely been last year in particular. Somewhat, that's right. Yeah, surreal. Um, a final but, uh, point about Bill. Unless you've got anything else to say about Bill. Yes. Um, no, no. I have a theory that Bill Denbrough, and this is kind of very niche horror fiction theory, is based on Peter Straub. Oh, that's interesting. Peter Straub stutters. He's bold. He lived in England for a long time. He's an Anglophile. I also think Peter Straub married an actress, which also Bill Denbrough does. And I know um, Stephen King is a big fan of Straub because they work together on The Talisman and Black House. And also he talks very highly about ghost story, which, you know, I, everybody should talk highly about ghost story. It's, it's an incredible book. And I, I just wonder if, if maybe it's kind of outsourcing it slightly and saying this is actually about Peter Straub. Because I know it and ghost story have a lot in common with each other because they're both dealing with, like, archetypes. They're both dealing with the idea of, like, you, what you fear appears to you as what you fear and you have to kind of overcome that. So that's just me throwing that one out there. I'd be interested to hear if any listeners out there have an opinion on that. I mean, because I know a lot of, there's a lot of crossover between King and Straub, obviously. I do not know anything about Peter Straub except the two novels he wrote with Stephen King. So I keep, I've fallen into that thing of calling him Stephen King again. Um, <laughs> the two novels he wrote with King, I which I read and liked to varying degrees. I know nothing about him, but there's so many crossover uh, it, it, in what you just described I wouldn't be surprised but also you reminded me of the stutter that's another instance of Bill having to actualize himself and mm -hmm. push through something and so I love that I, I think that's a really good reading actually the actualization of ourselves and viewed through Bill and that again there's so much that's right in this book mm. 
there's so much that actually feels sticky and deep and works. That's one of the things I did want to talk about is how the novel has these consistencies. There's a few, there's a few little themes that don't come off in the book, but most of them you can, it's one of these things where you can just dig down and it feels consistent and like, it can't be accident. Knowing Stephen King, it's not purely design. There's a lot of great instinct working at its highest level in it. I think it's the most. It's probably the. It's probably the most multi-leveled or multi-layered feel book. It's, sure. it's where he. There's a lot of great structural stuff. It cannot be one of those ones he just belted out <laughs> because it's so carefully constructed. Because the book, you know. Um, weaves between the old and the uh, the kids and the adults and it gets increasingly intertwined and it gets very carefully intertwined yeah but i think i think sk was going on feel for these themes and just he was so in the zone i think everything like he thrusts his his fists against the post and still he says he sees the ghost that's Bill having to actualize himself and push through that. And I've never quite loved that theme. That's mm. one of the themes that never really rang true for me. But with this reading, it fits in perfectly. You can always find more things that do join up. This is a very contemplatable novel. Yeah, I mean, talking about the the, the structure of the book, I mean, it, when you consider it as a whole, it's, it's an extraordinary achievement, isn't it? I mean, just the idea of, like you say, it's so beautifully subtly played in places and to actually have that in epic novel i mean because he, he's a master of the short story I'll, I'll grant him that every day of the week i mean the, the, it, it, this must be stephen king's best structured book it's um because yeah. the stand is very much one is the stand is all moving towards a point yeah and i mean whether I know, it, it's all weaving in and out of that and the stand's a three-act play but um and which gets bogged down in the middle and i i still love it i yeah. I, but I mean, there's a lot of committee meetings, but <laughs> but it but it is like you know again for you know all all the for all the stick King takes you know from lit, the literary world. Who else? It, it, there's not that many novelists that are capable of this panoramic mm. sort of interwoven narrative that takes in what it must be hundreds of characters and you know hundreds of years of history and two timelines that weave so successfully in and out of each other. I love, again, the film didn't get this because it updated things, but it's no coincidence, is it, that 58 is 85 backwards yeah. and <laughs> vice versa. And, 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 and it's just so pleasing. And again, the, all these decisions, it's a lovely piece of art because all of these decisions have knock-on effects to other things. That's 27 years apart which gives the it the cycle of 27, mm-hmm. which is nearly but not quite 28, because mm-hmm. 28 would tip you off perhaps to tidal rhythms and moon rhythms and menstrual rhythms, and you might be looking for a female at the end. But because 85 is a palindrome of um, 58, and because 27 is nearly but not quite 28, there's a little bit of disguise, so that reveal is a surprise at the end. And oh, that's it, fascinating. It, you know, it... that's my take on that you know he he found a lot of games that worked in tandem with each other here and just every little trick is just given one little polish more than in a you know than in 
a lesser book. It's mm. really nice. Well, I mean, you, you, you're a writer yourself, and I, I can only imagine how terrifying it must be to actually contemplate even attempting something on this. On this, tell me about it. <laughs> I, 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 I find it. I, I mean, I, I find it. I find it terrifying. Compliment. Uh, com. What's the word? Contemplating, dear uh, boy. Thank you, thank you. I find it hard to speak, obviously. I find it hard contemplating writing a haiku. By the way, I think Ben's haiku, Ben's haiku as written by King, is beautiful. Oh, well, yeah, exactly. Like, it, I mean, it, it's a really good haiku. <laughs> it's like, and again, uh, but yeah, um, well, that's, to, that's, to write a nice haiku. That's kind of the structure of the novel, isn't it? I mean, it works in the, it works in the micro and the macro. The haiku is beautiful. Each chapter could be a short story in a way, and each section exactly. could be like a part of a trilogy. And then it, novel itself also works. It's like cutting through a cake and finding each layer is perfectly, perfectly risen. Right, which you know, I, again, I presume there must have been more planning than the average King novel. Sure, but the instinct, the instinct is so strong there too. And that working in tandem, this is why it's a book that you need more than one discussion <laughs> unless we're being super indulgent but um but 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 again, uh, one of the things i really wanted to talk about weirdly which we didn't kind of discuss last time is it mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. like as in the monster yeah no absolutely no it's it's something we, we we kind of avoided and it's kind of interesting perhaps that we did avoid it because it is so difficult to kind of get a grasp on I disagree. I think I don't think we avoided it. I think there's just so much else to talk about that you can you can talk about it for a long time without talking about it stroke Pennywise. Um, you know, in the movies, they've really fetishized Pennywise, obviously, yes. yeah. recently. Mm-hmm. And, you know, those um, the, the the design of the uh, grease paint is basically a superhero motif now, you know, like um, it, the kind of lines going through the eyes they you know they've really reduced pennywise to being the star of the show mm. and to sort of you know sort of being the thing that you wait for but in the book again it's it's much thicker than that and pennywise obviously can be whatever you want it to be in your mind's eye um what, is what, what i love I mean, about w- it w- when you think of it do you think of pennywise mm. do you think of the the spider do you think of kind of one of its do you, what do you think of Derry itself? I think of I think of Pennywise. I think of an it behind Pennywise, although I don't necessarily think of the spider. Mm-hmm. But, but Pennywise is Pen, Pennywise is a grotesque burlesque bravado version of it. Yeah, um, there is an it behind that, and then I think of Derry itself probably. But what um, it's in Pennywise is just a great name, by the way. You know, Pennywise. <laughs> it, it, it it's um it, it's one of the it's kind of one of the great names from literature if that's not saying too much it's it's just um it sounds dickensian doesn't it it sounds dickensian and using it all the time would be very silly and grating mm. so it's lovely that it's it's only used as and when and um most of the time the losers call it it mm. but sometimes I I don't think we hear one of the losers call Pennywise Pennywise in the moment until they're in the Chinese restaurant. It, and it's Ben when they when they're meeting up on the reunion. Ben says it was him. It was that fucker Pennywise. Mm. I think the only other time I might be wrong. I think the only other time we've heard the 
the name Pennywise is right at the start when when Pennywise is in the drains yeah. and introduces itself to George, right? Absolutely. Then there's like then there's like a whole I don't know, 200 pages of the novel where you don't hear that again. And that's a great thing. Mm. It's it's just used, again, just used so well. But it sounds Dickensian. It sounds old-timey. Um, it sounds it, it sounds like old-time Americana. It sounds municipal, Pennywise, something that you have to watch all the time. It, it, it's all those old ideas of prud- being, being prudent and mm. being careful. And it's got, but and yet it's sinister at the same time. Be Pennywise. There's a warning in there, yeah. you know. Oh, but I, child. I love how arcane it is. It's a beautiful name. Well, it's also quite prescient in terms of topicality because I mean, this was written at the beginning of the 1980s, when you have this idea that the 70s has been about fiscal irresponsibility to an extent. Jimmy Carter, Gerald Ford, kind of OPEC. You've, the the economy has kind of crashed a little, and then. Well, Reagan comes along and says, no, it's all about a new morning in America. It's about the family. Save your pennies. You know, you're going to be rich. We're all going to be rich. It's going to be fine. So there's a little idea of like that idea. Of, it's it's very much of its time as well, I think. And it, that relates to the 50s as well, I guess. Mm. You know, you come out of World War Two and it's a brand new age of gizmos and gadgets. And by the way, I don't know if you've read Bill Bryson's book about the 50s, which is a great, great book about 50s Americana called... Um, something like The Life and Times of the Thunderbolt Kid or something. I've heard of uh, it, yeah. It, very, very recommended because, again, that's a, a, you know another thing that I wonder if we'll get time to talk about is just the 50s. You know, I, I always say that it is about three things. I said that to you when you first contacted me and then you added one more. So I'll say it's about four <laughs> things. But I always say, I always say it's a love letter to 50s Americana. Mm-hmm. It's a paean a pain to uh, childhood mm-hmm. and it's a monster movie mm-hmm. and then you said and it's a rite of passage story so I'll give you that as well so <laughs> Thank you. um but 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 yeah um but the 50s is so important um but yeah sorry to get back to it <clears throat> so I, I love I love that I, I love that Pennywise is a shifting thing there's another you know there's also Robert Gray yes which comes up as a name every so often and it's fascinating that it's a clown so it's a guy wearing a mask to begin with isn't it it's already like a role that somebody else is playing it's not just like a clown existing sweet generous it's 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 a guy yeah it, it, it it's the perfect metaphor for um for the monster to be a, a something behind a mask something something behind a mask that is related to children mm. a clown and but something that is shiftable and uh protean and volatile and so, so he it goes by it goes by names. It's called it. It's called Pennywise. It's sometimes called Robert Gray, mm. um, and you don't know why. Why is it choosing? Why is it choosing to manifest itself as Robert Gray and, or present itself as Robert Gray in certain circumstances? It's, I, I love how little is said about that and how sinister it is as a result. So, um, when Mike Hanlon begins his exploration of Derry's past, he talks to somebody who heard it in the drains, and the and the voice from the drain said. Uh, our name is Legion. Mm. So it goes, and so my two favourite villains in all of, or monsters in all of King are It, or Pennywise, and Randall Flagg. They're the big ones for me. Sure, because Randall Flagg is also all of the others as well. It's that idea. Of- exactly. They both, ha- they both have 
many, many titles. They they are both legion. Mm. Randall Flagg is the walking dude. He's the dark man. He's Randall Flagg. He's got others, hasn't he? The hard and, uh, case. and that's even before you get <laughs> the hard case. Yeah. Uh, the tall man. Um, that's before you even get to the dark tower where he's about 19,000 other people because <laughs> King kept, because King goes, Oh, I actually, I kind of need him to be Martin now. But anyway, th- those are a bit, those are a bit lesser for me because they're an improvisation, but, um, get that. but that's, that's why I love at the end both, of the stand. He, 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 he introduced himself and I, my name is Russell Faraday. And you kind of think, Oh, it's, it's mm, why, why do that? That's it. That's same initials. It's that same idea. It's just, and uh, again, it, it, it's these, it's these feelings that there are rules outside of our Ken that are being adhered to, like Randall Flagg always has to come back as an RF, mm. always present himself as an RF. And like, again, who is Robert Gray and why does it present itself as Robert Gray's? You don't know the rules, but it implies a huge backstory. But so th- that's one of the most in- interesting things to me. But here's what I really love about the monster. It's the logic engine mm. of the monster. It feels like without being told, you there's many times when I'm reading or listening to it where I go, why can't it just do that? And then I answer the question for myself in a way that makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. And what I mean to say is that, for instance, there are that we, we, there's one point where we're told that it has to abide by the rules of the shape it's in. And that's why the silver bullet can stop the werewolf. But also we know it the, the silver slug can stop the werewolf because it's a representation of the children's belief and faith, right? Mm-hmm. But that's the only rule you're told about, that it has to abide by the shape it's in. The rest of the time, you have to sort of, um, you have to sort of figure out why the, is the monster convincing or not, right? So here's an example for you that I find really interesting. When Stan sees the dead boys in the stand pipe, he's telling the other kids at the laundrette about what happened. He's finally revealing this story. And Eddie goes, oh, my God, you were at the standpipe. Before he's even told the story, you were at the standpipe. Um, that's where those kids drowned. And Stan goes, what the hell? And he goes, why? You know, because that's going to coincide with Stan's story. So it's clear that Stan did not know mm-hmm. that real life story. And yet it is still able to manifest as something Stan didn't know about. Why? If that's not Stan's fear... Why and how can it manifest as something that Stan didn't know about? And that's, to me, this is what's interesting, because it implies that what's going to upset... uh, It chooses something that's going to upset and offend Stan, right? Mm -hmm. Something that he's very scared of. And that happens to be kind of a corrupt, grotesque perversion of life. That is really, you know, Stan's kind of fear. There's a fear of disorder and life and corruption. But it also riffs on and uses something that did happen at the standpipe which was the death of these children mm. and it uses that as its raw material to transform into something that is also going to coincide and upset stan coincide with stan's fears and upset him mm-hmm. so to, to it's not a logic it's not a plot hole at all well stan didn't know about them so how could it be it's just to me it suggests like it's modus operandi and that's what i mean when i talk about the logic engine like or the it. physics engine of the monster, you see. It and Derry are kind of inextricably entwined as well. Because the idea that it it, yeah. it it knows this horrible thing has happened at the standpipe. Exactly. And it's kind of it's its history is Derry's it, history. Its costumes are 
happened in Derry, you know? That's exactly what I'm talking about. Like it constructs this kind of concoction drawn from something that happened in real life, which happened there and draws on it to, in a way to tr trigger Stan. It kind of remixes Derry like a DJ, you mm -hmm. know, it makes it, or, 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 or a cook using the ingredients of the raw materials that are to hand. So that's interesting to me. Again, Mike is at the canal side later and he's thinking about Eddie Corcoran and he finds he finds this pen knife with the initials on. Yeah. Now Eddie has just we've just seen Eddie before Mike gets there be um killed by it manifesting as the creature from the Black Lagoon. Yes. And Mike gets there a bit later. He sees these, you know, really indicative marks leading to the canal edge. It's really mm -hmm. horrifying. And he finds this pen knife, something's happened. But what happens is that Mike starts getting us an echo of the most recent horror, which is the creature of the Black Lagoon. He, he smells a fishy seawater smell in the air. And we're pretty sure that whatever just got Eddie Corcoran is now going to be coming after Mike, right? Why did... why? why the question is, why was Mike receptive to it in the shape that it actually adopted for Eddie? Why, why wouldn't it have gone back to the bird form, yeah. right? So my answer to that, again, is like there's some deep, convincing things at an instinctive level here, right? There must be a common bunch of fears allied to any particular place. Like we must have a lot of unconscious fears as humans. If we stand on a cliff, part of us is thinking unconsciously or otherwise about falling off that cliff. If you stand by a canal or the sea, other things are being dredged up and it is able to you know, if Mike's standing by the canal, that goes deep into his unconscious. And watery monsters rather than bird ones might be a little bit mm -hmm. more on the horizon, right? And then also maybe he's receiving a kind of echo of what just happened to Eddie at the canal, which is a kind of afterglow. And perhaps it is sort of still languishing, you know, wallowing in its last kill. And he's just sort of playing with Mike in that way. So it just feels like a very organic and instinctive grip on the rules of this monster. He doesn't, like, King doesn't explain everything, but the underlying logic always feels right to me. Mm. I like the idea of that, like what you say, the afterglow, because it's the idea of, like, Derry itself is a bubble that once you enter it, it has a, a heightened reality or it's got a surreality or it's got a, a strange atmosphere to it, whatever you want to call it. Right, right. And it's the same thing that after killing Eddie Cochran by the river, that there would still be that bubble that's being created and you could kind of walk into that in the same way you'd watch a film or pick up a book and start reading it. You would be in that narrative. You might not have meant to have been there, but it's the idea like you, you have intruded upon this constructed reality in which the guild man from Creature of the Black Lagoon has come out of the canal and killed his boy. There's a meniscus mm. that's still, that hasn't quite been burst yet. That That's right, that um, Mike is still in at that point and it, and it might well coincide with unconscious fears of water and monsters too because they're not... One, one, we don't each of us just have one fear. We have lots of fears hidden under the surface. So, uh, And it it just it just all feels good it it feels like a, it feels right it feels like a you know um dairy is basically from a supernatural point of view radioactive isn't it and it's got yeah. all these vestiges and it can choose to you know choose to manifest or it, sometimes it doesn't even feel like it's trying it's just toying i don't i think it's just toying with mike there and uh 
It, it, you know, it, it's a very pernicious thing. Yeah, when the adults come back to Derry in '85, they all talk about the idea that once you cross that 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 town line, it feels like you're shut in there. If you you just can't leave. That's right. You know? There's a that's right. There's a great part. There's a great bit where Bill, I think, is in Concord, and it feels like Derry is rushing towards him, yeah. rather than he is flowing towards Derry, and that's just a great image. Mm. So yeah, re- really, really cohesive, convincing stuff. But these constructions, they must be quite subconscious to Pennywise. Like, I don't know if he's aware that Mike has intruded upon this death scenario that he's created for Eddie Cochran. Because if you go back to the confrontation in Neibolt Street, where Richie sees the the werewolf, but I. I, I does Bill see him as the werewolf then as well? I can't remember. Is it the left? No, no. Bill sees him as that. That's a big clue for them that they um that that, that leaves them onto the idea of it as a skin shifter or shapeshifter. Yeah. In that, and it's a really good reveal. It's I think the whole scene with Richie and Bill at Neibold Street, we hear it's a werewolf until right at the end of it. I think Bill looks round and he, and it sort of says the clown was no longer there. So you realise that Bill's been seeing it as a clown. And when they pull that information, that's their first clue. Now, so yeah, it, again, my, my answer would be that from the prosaic point of view, n- neither one of them shouts out, it's a werewolf mm-hmm. or it's a clown, which would influence the other kid. But also it is kind of working with those, both of those kids on first principles at that point and just taking the fir- the first fear that manifests or there. Uh, again, I, I, I feel like I know how it works, even though, you know, I don't know how it works, but I, I, I have a vague idea of how my computer works, and I, <laughs> but I, I believe I believe that it works, and I feel the same way about the monster in it. You know, when they find the leeches in the in Patrick Hoxtetter's is that his surname? Hoxtetter, yeah, yeah, Patrick Hoxtetter's refrigerator. They, you know, they represent like l- tiny little bits of its power and plasma mm. they, you know they they're not strong they're not gonna they're not strong enough to mount a threat they're just artifacts they're the um you know they're they're a little bit of radioactive fallout from the event that's just happened right and that's interesting uh, yeah and so so again i think it has to marshal its forces and concentrate if it splits itself into many many bits it's not it it doesn't it throughout the book it doesn't attack 12 different places at once it's clearly linked there are clearly these unwritten rules that just feel right and i i i think like um there are so many times when i ask myself is there a hole here or why wouldn't it do that and the answer is always there and it's always it's always an organic but instinctive answer but it is i've said enough i just think the monster really goddamn works and it doesn't work on it, it doesn't work on any one simple principle. It works on a whole bunch of stuff that you can always find a good answer for. But it, it must be like an internal logic that even Pennywise itself kind of is constrained by. Because I'm, I'm thinking of two things specific. I'm thinking, firstly, the fact that it manifests itself as a giant spider towards the end. And King takes a lot of care to say it's not actually a spider. 
but this is what ah uh, well does he that's a, that's a... yeah it's a spider but it's not really we'll come spider. on to that yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the, but the fact that it's a spider means there are cobwebs and it means it reproduces through eggs which i think is really interesting that it's constrained by this and by doing so makes itself vulnerable I th- it's constrained by the sort of human idea of uh, by human limitations actually mm-hmm. on earth it's it, the the adult or the kids and the adults see it as a spider because they can't see it as anything else. It's the closest they can see. Mm. It's a bit like when the spaceship comes down or the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah, that, that's the, the closest you can grasp is a kind of power mm. coming down. You, it may be a spaceship, maybe something else, but it's it. We we're just trying to make sense of some geometry or some physiognomy that's outside of our ken. Um, was it? The other th- uh, was there another instance you were going to talk about it well, being I'm, constrained or defined? I'm not necessarily constrained, but the idea that the Pennywise facade, the Pennywise avatar of it, does have a certain amount of primacy because, like, when Mike sees the bird and he sees the bird's mouth, it's got orange pom poms in it, and when Richie sees the teenage werewolf, the orange pom poms are kind of a repeated motif in the Pennywise kind of patch on his clothes. It's the idea that why is the clown thing so pervasive? Even when it's not being the clown, you know, like the balloons by the mummy or the vampire, you know. Because, well, the 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 first answer is because it's a it's a hooky thing for the reader, which isn't <laughs> a good answer. But it, yeah. but we that's why we love it, right? Because this this book has stickability and it has things that you can dig. And I've got a nice little statue of it downstairs holding up some balloons, and I love it. And um, <laughs> But but the but the, but the real answer is it, it's to do with again there's a weird symbiotic relationship between it and people and particularly particularly children mm. and there's this conversation that you know I, I think Richie or Bill says it's like the Joker he always leaves a trademark uh. and then I think Richie goes yeah it, 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 he thought about it and he, it is like the Joker it's like it's all about kids stuff that you know but then that's what this monster seems to trade on thinks Richie you know. Mm. It it kind of is forced to leave is forced to play by the rules of the meat it consumes or the minds it consumes. So you know if it's dealing with bee monsters and comic book monsters and the imaginations of children which lend it its power, it also has to be bound by that kind of that, that kind of limitation. Which you know is it a prideful thing of it? Is it a grandstanding thing to lead it, or is it almost obliged? to do what we expect it to do. And these questions are asked a few times throughout the novel. That symbiotic relationship, again, feels like yet another of these sort of half or unwritten rules that, you know, help it become such a cohesive, interesting monster. But that's reminded me of something else, right, which is uh, something you said, which is, um, what was it? Uh, There are times when, yes, the fact that it... It it also seems to be bound in some ways by actual physics. Yeah. Sometimes it it can just manifest anything anywhere. It can manifest feathers in Mike's drawer at the library, mm-hmm. or it can manifest Stan's head, or it can yeah, um, the fortune cookies, where it's kind of yeah different aspects of itself in in miniature essentially. Exactly, but those but those are not its most powerful weapons. To be really powerful, we kind of know that it also sort of has to come up through the drains. For instance, mm. the, uh, the toilet at Nebelt Street mm-hmm. is one of its actual entry points into the world. So although it can kind of show you fireworks and images around town and scare you 
uh, sometimes those are almost projections. Uh, we, we, there's a feeling that it has to, you know, to be truly effective and truly at its worst. And when it wants to kill, it's coming out of somewhere. It's coming out of Neibolt Street or it's coming out of the um, Morlock holes in the Barrens, you know. Mm, it has so, physicality. And again, it, yeah. That, yeah, but again, both of these things dance around each other. And the, 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 impre- the impressive thing for me is how nebulous this whole thing could have been and how it could have fallen apart but in fact king just knows which notes not to play and which bits not to explain and for me whenever i question it 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 feels right i go yeah it is not at its fully most deployed here and it is there and it isn't there and it just feels great it's such an achievement and i suppose it's also like a a narrative concern because if the kids had seen these different aspects of it as a werewolf or a mummy and not being able to get that through line of it being all connected, that would be like a very different book. That's like the the book where you have the town with yeah. the mummy and the werewolf and the yeah all the town of monsters, yeah, <laughs> and just um, running around and um, you've got to stop them all. You know, you got to catch them all. It's like Pope. yeah, the, the the children and the town of monsters. It's not as good, is it? But that um, like a point horror novel or something. We, it really does. I mean, I it's interesting again. All of that stuff which works so well in the books doesn't play great on screen because actually on screen what you get is basically a monster who just runs at people and then sort of stops mm. over and over again he goes la, 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 mm-hmm. and then you just go oh go away and he goes away and it, it just he looks very ineffectual in the the way the last movie did it anyway but it, it time and time again it's just kind of why didn't you just take three more steps forward and then eat them. <laughs> just round, you know, it, it, it seems like a real empty threat. Whereas in the book, if you know that it's kind of a symbiotic relationship between your own belief and power, it's very Ray Bradbury. It's very, um, mm. uh, what well, something wicked this way comes where you defeat the monster with your own beliefs and with your own laughter and ridicule. Absolutely. So it's not a new idea, but, but, you know, King, it, this is, you know, it is the most, it's it's just the most fully developed realization of that, and the and the most interwoven. In fact, it feels like we're um, flirting with talking about the ending of the book, which we definitely we're getting should. there. <laughs> because I mean, that it's the ultimate dislocation between the idea of it being a physical presence, a physical threat, and also it being this metaphysical concept as well. Because I mean, I'm sure the people out there. They know the book, but if you've only seen the film, you won't get the idea of how strange the end of the book is. There's the ritual of Chud, which is talked about by a couple of characters earlier on, this idea of you bite into the tongue of the, the Lugaru, the the the, it, the Pennywise, the yes. monster, and then you tell each other jokes or you try to make each other laugh. And in the book, this is kind of redefined as kind of biting onto the, I don't know how you'd call it, the metaphysical tongue of Pennywise when it's in its physical form and being literally taken out of your own body and being taken on this very strange trip to the to the edge of the universe and it's it's a really odd strange abstract magical moment in a book that is often very grounded in reality did, did, well, did, did, did it work for, for you the ending because the first couple of times I read it I just I really didn't get it but recently I've, I've really I mean I well, there's a there's a bunch to say. Can I just quickly say about the film that I walked out of it part two because I got bored with it, <laughs> Fair enough. and I didn't even see 
And the other day, thinking about it a lot as I do, I thought oh, I should. I'd, I'd like to see what the spider looked like at least. Yeah. And I was really disappointed to find out that they put Pennywise's head on it because that is yeah. exactly not the point. That is exactly <laughs> not the point. This is where this is where you're meant to see it without any of its glamours. And even if even if the human mind can only comprehend it as a spider, it's meant to be a spider. It is not meant to be Pennywise. So mm-hmm. again, I'm not a fan of the films, as you know, but. I, I kind of am, but I, I will I will say that that you kind of highlighted one of the big problems with the films that it it does fall in love with its own Pennywise. It does. That's its, its money. It, its it, money it, shot is it, always Pennywise. Yeah, that's the thing. That's yeah. how we sell it, you know. And that's not the point. Is and, the uh, but would you agree that it's a failure to put Pennywise's head on the spider? Oh yeah, the the I, the ending of it too is extraordinarily. Um, uh, I found it very disappointing, very cheesy, and. It wasn't the film I hated, but that made me want to really hate it. <laughs> okay, so let's so let's get to the actual book then, which is, um, yeah, I, I get, it's, you know, they make a well. I'll talk about the film a little bit just for this, but they mm. they make a lot of play in that second it movie about you know it's a well known thing that Stephen King can't end a story, ho ho ho, yeah. and I think that's kind of. I, I I disagree quite a lot with that actually. Agree. I, um, yeah. I can see the I can I can see the case, but there's plenty of Stephen King stories where I'm perfectly happy with the ending. I will say there's there's a lot where the ride is so good that I don't care about the ending as much because I I'll forgive I'll forget I'll forgive a lot in Stephen King's ending. Oh yeah. But um so but everybody everybody who reads it has a little bit of like. Okay, it was just a spider. Well, okay. Firstly, <laughs> it's a pretty good metaphor, actually. Yeah. A spider at the centre of a web. That's not bad, guys. Exactly. You could do a lot worse, right? I mean, it shouldn't be a panda, right? That would be bad. <laughs> uh, but, like the human mind could only grasp it essentially as a as a red panda. No, that would be that would suck. I, 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 if you're if you're going to be bound if you're going to be bound by one metaphor, a spider's pretty good. I have always thought that. It is a bit of a cop out, however, in that I like the idea that we're bound by this. We can only see it as a spider, but it does relate to something beyond the stars, which is its ultimate cosmic or beyond, you know, post cosmic <laughs> um, manifestation or reality, right? Mm. But I think the problem is that I, I think the problem is it does feel like. He couldn't. It it, 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 it insists on itself. It says there was something amazing. I'm not really that committed enough, or that skilled enough, or that I haven't got enough energy to really make you feel that amazing thing. But just trust me, there was something amazing beyond it. It feels a bit sketched in, which yeah. is rare for it. Yeah, like you said, I mean, what would you write a book like that? How do you even imagine finishing it? You know, it's ridiculous. I I I, I think. Its ultimate manifestation beyond the spider is a bit penciled in, and it is a bit. Just please, guys, take it on trust. It was amazing, mm. and it seems weird that you have all these histrionics, these kind of this really bizarre, surreal imagery. But the image, the finale that I actually remember is just Bill Denver waking up. I mean, that seems to be like the the bit you actually think is as, as the ending. The turtle. Well, there's some interesting. St- the ritual of Chud. It seems like just a, a means to an end. It's just a. It's just a way to get to this point. There's some interesting stuff in there. What I've. 
like the turtle obviously yeah. then comes um, crosses over to other things like the dark tower but it's a bit vague isn't it this is see this is a good example of where vagueness doesn't work actually mm. like i've said that with pennywise's logic engine with pennywise's mo all the notes that aren't played contribute to your feel of what it, it, you fill them in in your own mind and they work and they feel cohesive. When you try and do that with the, the Cosmoverse and the Metaverse and the Turtle and the great big deadlights beyond or whatever mm. they are and the endlessness, when you try and... Th this is this is King hoping that he can be vague enough and that you will fill them in to your satisfaction and it doesn't really hit the sides. But it, it Yeah, but it does work at various points in the book because I don't know about you, but I got this idea on my re most recent reread for this interview, that it is kind of the pervasive, vague force behind Derry, behind the evil in Derry. Absolutely, of course. And the turtle is kind of this vague force behind bringing the children together and maybe safeguarding them on on some level, which again, it's a very Stephen King idea. It's the idea of like Mother Abigail and Randall Flagg both existing in separate ways, vaguely influencing people. And just gently nudging them in the right direction to actually, and that's right. And I mean, it nudge and it sorry, it, it crosses over into the turtle whose name is what Matterchan or something Maturin, like that. Um, I think, yeah, Which, Maturin, yeah. Thank you. A very, you know, uh, being one of the guys. name, I think, isn't it? For a rite of passage book, Maturin. Oh, Maturin. <laughs> <laughs> I had, there's one I hadn't spotted. Because it, it's not it's it's not used in it actually. It's used in um, the Dark Tower. The name, mm. but that's really funny. That I I always assumed that Maturin was you know one of those old archaic names made up of pseudo uh, religious um, psycho religious names or something. I don't know. I, I but you might be right. It might just it it might be later on. He goes, I'm going to just make a pun for maturing. Could be. Well, there's, there's a character um, in um, Patrick O'Brien's novels, the Master and Commander series called Maturin. I don't know if King's a, a fan of that. Uh, but, uh, oh, well, that, that, would figure, that would figure into the Dark Towers reality being made up of fiction as the starting point for mm. other realities. So the way he uses Shardik for the bear and he yep. uses... Um, that, that There's other names that he steals. Or the, the way that the wolves look like Harry... No, they look like the Green Lantern, but and they throw things, snitches, like, from Harry Potter. So <laughs> I guess Maturin is another literary reference, actually. And in fact... but I, Sorry, I've gone a bit off the subject. Let's see. Um, but yeah, this turtle, the deadlights, the, the big void. There's this reference to a third entity. But you see, that's the weird thing. The turtle doesn't really do anything. He gives Bill a few cryptic clues and he and the cryptic clues don't really convince no. either he just goes yes yes son you've got to just keep thrusting your fist against the post and still insist that you see the ghost and it's not very helpful and then the second time they go back as an adult uh, as adults the turtle's dead yeah and yet there's still there's reference to what a third entity beyond it and beyond the turtle did you pick that up because it goes by in a couple of sentences here and there and it's unusual. I don't know if it? you noticed that on this re on this reading. But that, again, that's that's the stand as well, isn't it? You have a force for good and a force for evil. The force for good dies fairly on, but then you have the idea yeah. of the hand of God at the end, which yeah, it's that's right. It's it, it, it's it's it, yeah. and it's the tur exactly it's it, and it's the turtle and a third other beyond it that is only alluded to in a clutch of lines here and there in the finale and. 
that must be, it, it feels like it's God, a bigger, you know, an ultimate creator. And but it's very, very, very flabby. Yeah, well, I think it's kind of I a victim of its own success because you've had a thousand pages of, I would say, beautifully written human interaction, observation of how children are, how their belief systems work, how they talk to each exactly. other, how adults grow exactly. up, and then to introduce at the end an element that goes beyond this. It's never going to be quite as good. It... I think I think that's exactly why what I was saying earlier about forgiving an ending when it's not the greatest ending in the world. It's not even the greatest ending in the book because the code is better. But it's, uh, it's like he wasn't even the best drummer in the Beatles, right? But um, uh, it's but um, but but yeah, the, the what has come before that's that's even. Uh, necessitated the need for an ending is so rich that it doesn't bother me. Mm-hmm. And uh, the the stuff in the Cosmoverse doesn't really land massively for, for me. Actually killing a spider and ripping its heart out is fine, but I, who cares? Sure, yeah. Ultimately. Um, but that's fine. Uh, but what the, the, there's two real endings beyond that. One is the absolute apocalyptic, just biblical destruction of Derry. Mm-hmm. And then the other one is the coda with Bill on the bike, and both of those, like, uh, you know, they're they're they're, they're better. Yeah. And it, 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 even you know, it's it's kind of fun to see Derry get ripped apart and to see this love letter to fifties Americana, and what and you know, this is King's most fully realized full town, and that the only one to rival it would be Castle Rock, mm. because it has appeared in so many stories. But Derry is the real. Derry is the Derry is the most essential um, boiled down version of small town that King ever did. With your old timers sitting on steps, with your library, with your drugstore, with your school, with your old fashioned cinemas, with your gossips, with your goodies, your baddies, your shadowy figures, your helpers, your villains. It's got with your you know the history of the yeah. town. It's all about that, and then Derry. Uh, and then King just loves to destroy that at the end. And what's he saying? I mean, it's it, it, there's been a partial destruction of that even in the 80s where they go back to the town mm-hmm. as adults and you see that, you know, all of those beautiful old-time things from the 50s have started to be replaced by office buildings and glass and chrome and Chinese restaurants and malls. And what there, there's, there's a few links to the past. There's a few links to that small township, such as... Um, well, there's the secondhand rows. Sec- the library corridor is like the kind of the main one, and the cinema as well. I think, yeah. Well, my, my, it- my, the cinema only survives because Mike, as a librarian, exactly. campaigns to stop it being turned into banks. So, it, like King's talking about a disappearing world here as well, and then, um, you know, one of the one of the uh, storehouses of the past. Is that small junk shop Bill goes to and finds silver, secondhand rose, secondhand clothes? But even that is just a shabby little remnant. It's not even a nice junk shop. It's just a shabby holder of a few artifacts from the past. So I think I think there is. I think when King destroys Derry at the end, he's saying that like, screw it, that fifties thing has gone now. The eight is built over it, but I'm just going to rip it all down because it's gone. And I think. He he mourns it, you know, but he he enjoys destroying a town. But I think there's also, you know, he. I, yeah, I love that idea. It's so meticulous the construction of Derry, 
and then to just tear everything down at the end and say, well, that, that's it. Never again. It's, and even says it, it's, it's never going to come back from this. It's never going to be rebuilt. Which, by the way, kind of it. Which leads, which leads me on to something I get, do get annoyed at, which I do not <laughs> like insomnia. Do you like insomnia? I like insomnia. I haven't read it in a while. And I seem to remember the ending being similarly um, out of place. I can't remember, but I mean, but but insomnia is set in Derry, isn't it? Um, yes. Well, the yeah, the ending's really weird. It it sucks to me that like it, insomnia is entirely set in a rebuilt Derry, mm. and it doesn't convince me at all. I mean, I just that is when I read insomnia, I get nothing of a Derry from it. Mm-hmm. I'm like. It may. What, why call it Derry? What 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 point is that making? That if it, if you destroy something so comprehensively and rebuild it, it's not Derry at all. I don't think King's making a philosophical point there. I just think he should have chosen a different town. There is a rather clumsy bit of world building, if memory serves, at the end of Insomnia, where the main character confronts the Crimson King, who is of course the from the Dark Tower and everything else. And he kind of says, yeah, I, I've been to Derry before, and he implies that he's also Pennywise as well. So there's a very somewhat clumsy dragging together of these separate strands. Which... I'm totally editing that out of my... Uh, uh, totally editing, editing that out of my relationship with it. I do not... <laughs> it, it is not the Crimson King, no thank you. But also... But, but, but I, I just... Like, I would expect... One of the many things I didn't like about Insomnia is that if you're gonna if you're gonna set it in a rebuilt Derry, set it for a reason where it feels like Derry and it's a return for the reader and whatever else is going on. But it just doesn't. It may as well have been called Newtown or yeah. Biggles Bay, Biggles Wisconsin. Uh, it, it it's not Derry. What my my favourite return to Derry is just that very very small cameo we get in the JFK book. Eleven twenty two sixty three. That's a lovely sequence. Yeah. Now that I love, just seeing Bev and Richie having a moment where, uh, and you know, being asked for directions or whatever by our time traveller. Mm. That 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 in 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 a, a paragraph and a half or whatever it is, that is much more resonant than anything in Insomnia. Yeah, it's interesting. I it's 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 odd that sometimes King knows not to go back and sometimes he just can't help himself because my, my favorite king novel as i've said before many times this has always been salem's lot and salem's lot is one of those ones that kind of never gets revisited except obliquely as a a couple of short stories one's a prequel one's a very vague sequel and it's lovely that it exists wholly as its own entity that he's never come back and said what is it which of the two stories one for the road is one of them one for the it? road is a sequel in which kind of Salem's Lot is completely populated by vampires who are just preying on the, the unwary passerby and the prequel great title is, as well exactly Jerusalem's Lot which I think is in Night Shift and that's like a it's not even a vamp it's not even a vampire story it's a odd Lovecraftian gothic monstrosity it's it's kind of a uh, a bit of a creaky old story but I love it it's really um full blood good writer isn't he Stephen King sorry yeah Good writer, Stephen King. What a world! <laughs> he can do it all, man. He can do it all. It's just... He he actually he actually can. But um... two novels a year, two novels a bloody year. Good God! I know, and and a lot of them just real tip top. But um, by the way, what about the return to Salem's Lot obliquely via the Dark Tower and um, Callahan? That's true. Uh, yeah. In full disclosure, um, part of the reason I started doing this podcast was because I've always had a bit of a um. 
tempestuous relationship with the Dark Tower series. Uh-huh. And I've covered the first book, which we did a um, God last year, and we're going to be covering the second book, The Drawing of the Three, with Ben Crask yeah. in a couple of months. But I, I'm still not 100% sold on them. So I haven't actually oh, read all of them. Ah, oh, okay. I so, spoke out of turn. Oh, all I'll say is that they're a wild and woolly ride. I avoided them for years. Yeah. And I only came I only came to them about four years ago and there's uh, yeah. anyway, I can't be <laughs> I, I can't talk about everything because I'm gonna I'm gonna phone you up again. I'm gonna, I'm gonna say we should do a third <laughs> return to Jerry, and that's insane. But I, I, I'm I, I, one last... a lot more this time around. I'm 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 getting a lot I more think out that... of it, yeah. I think it works a lot better on a second or third reading. I do, um, but the, and there are bits in it that are just brilliant for long stretches. And that boy, I envy anyone talking about <laughs> the Dark Tower on your podcast because there's stuff to talk about there, and it, it's so clunky in places. But it's there's so much good stuff. I do, there's one last, well, maybe one other big theme that I'd quickly like to talk Go about if it. you can bear it we in got it, time. We which got is time. the child. We got time. You're Andy Stanford, for God's sake. You can talk as much as you want. I'm, I'm a, I do talk as much as I want, much to everyone else's chagrin. Um, I, I think that whole stuff about 50s Americana, but actually, no, sorry, well, actually more than that, um, childhood belief being such yes. a big part of the book. I wanted to go back to this because you mentioned earlier the idea of like how children are. And I think it's really interesting that Pennywise chooses children as his, it chooses children as its victims, mainly because I, I think there's a preference towards flavor or something like that. But it's also because they, they have that different way of believing things and talking to other people about things. And the idea that you could say it's a werewolf and then the other kids will automatically see a werewolf because that's how it really works, isn't it? It's like the idea of when they're all in the cinema together and they're all seeing the Dial of the Teenage Werewolf and they're all excited at the same parts and in this collective belief. The um, the the section at the Aladdin, is it? The cinema? Yeah. Um, where they watch the double bill is one of the most perfect sections in the book because it brings together mm-hmm. everything. The childhood, mm. the monster uh, monster movie, literally, the 50s-ness of B-movies. And that, you know, the idea that this book is a repository for all of these things is just wonderful. Mm. And that's where they all intersect. And, uh, you know, I think that begins with something like that section begins with, you know, the next day, Richie encountered not one, but two monsters. And he, what's more, he paid to see both of them. And it's just lovely. And it, 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 it so cements the book in the fifties. It so cements it in that world of belief and imagination and faith and spectacle. Mm. There's a lot in this book about the way that kids, in particular, uh, yeah, you're right. It, it says it apparently, you know, feeds on the imagination of children because they're much sort of thicker and gaudier, or mm. more, you know, they're more primeval, or they're, they're more fluid, or whatever they are, they're gamier to its taste. And there's a lot about how children can hold all sorts of realities in their heads at once. Now, as a children's author, I see this a lot. Mm. Um, there are bits in my books where I know that I can I can put a character in a really dumb disguise for comic effect, mm-hmm. yeah. And I, I can make it I can make it like we all know who this guy is, right? But <laughs> he's wearing this hat, so I'll, I'll give him a different name. And then a kid, more than more than anyone, a kid is very capable of going, I know who that character is. It's the baddie Mr. Gumbo, because I didn't name him. 
this isn't an ad from my books. It's starting to sound like one. But because uh, <laughs> at the same time, they also think, "Is it though?" And they hold both. They go, "Is that the Goblin King or is it Mister Gum?" I know it's Mister Gum, but <laughs> also, and they, they 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 will hold both things simultaneously until at the end. You know, at a, at a certain point, you go, "Oh no, it's actually Mister Gum," and that's the my gag is that it was such a pathetic disguise. But a kid will hold both of those things. There's a lot about in it that pertains to kids not knowing, not being quite sure of what's real and what's not. Yeah, and and there's lots of discussions. They have um, there's lots of discussions which are really childlike and really perfectly done where they get fascinated going, oh my God, what's tinnitus? Can you, it's lockjaw. You have to get your, you, and they have to inject food into the side of your mouth. Or what's syphilis? Or what's this? And kids are always talking about that. What's this? How does this work? Oh my God, are you, yeah, then, 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 you're, then your dick rots off. You are kidding. No, it's real. As adults, we know it is real, but it sounds so weird as seen through the lenses of these kids. It could easily be a one kid winding up another one. Yeah. But kids are always trying to figure out what's what. And then, um, and because it's the fifties, they can't, they can't like get on the internet and just like say, you know, why is there a mad clown in my town chasing me? They have to discuss it amongst themselves and create their own. Yeah, Look, yeah. Well, please. but even, but, but I mean, it, well, in real life, we can't get on the internet and say, why is there a supernatural thing happening? Because super, I mean, I, I tell, it's just the mundane, it, they can't even find out about mundane stuff of life apart from each other, which still exists to some, you know, playground rumor and misinformation and the pooling of knowledge sometimes to a, uh, imperfect conclusion to be drawn it still happens that you know that that's still a part of growing up even with the internet um for instance you know sex comes up a few times mm. there's at least two or three discussions throughout the book of what sex is there's um i think vincent boogers taliendo who's one of the kids <laughs> at school um i think it's bev over here's uh, sorry uh, no he's he tell he tells who is it? He tells one of our characters. I think he tells Eddie, maybe. No, it might be Eddie. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, I, yeah, Eddie or Ben. I think he uh, he he gives them a really imperfect explanation as to how sex works. And then I think there's one later that Bev overhears. Yeah. At school, where um, it's rumored that the guy pees on your bug. <laughs> so there are all these like rumors floating around in the childhood world, um, and the kids, you know, they know things. And yet they don't. And there's lots of illustrations like Richie is in love with rock and roll, but he's very enthusiastic with it uh, about it. He's going to grow up to be a rock and roll DJ. But again, his understanding of it is so limited. There's um, a great scene where Mike's joined the losers and Richie starts talking about rock and roll. And Mike reels off a bunch of mm. lesser known artists, in, in particular black artists and bands. Yeah. And it amazes Richie. Like he's a massive advocate of rock and roll but his understanding is very limited because his experience is limited he's a child um, is he the one who has suddenly with eddie about whether neil sadaka is black or not and they say they can no, make... stan and yeah i think that's a great that's a great moment i think it's stan and eddie going to go back to <laughs> stan's or go go back to their, one of their houses and they bet them each other a pile of comic books that Neil Sadaka's black or something. That's right. And it's a, a perfect, perfect illustration of what kids know and what kids don't know. Of course, as adults, we don't know everything either, but we do know more than kids by and large. Be Bev doesn't quite know what boys have between their legs until she catches Henry and his gang mm. down at 
the dump. But that, you know, that doesn't stop her and the other losers from laughing at the word circumcision earlier in the book mm -hmm. when Rich is ragging Stan about being Jewish. Because as a kid, you don't know necessarily what stuff is. Your your understanding is cloudy. It's based on hearsay and rumor, but you know that it. You you kind of know that it's from the world of some things that's funny. So you laugh at circumcision, even if you don't really know what a penis is. I mean, uh, there's a bit where Bradley, the boy with the lisp, yes, calls Bev's mother a whore, mm. and Ben and Eddie and Bev are all outraged, even though they don't really know what a whore is. And then when Bev says, "My mother's not a whore; she's a waitress," yeah. there's this line, yeah, yeah. There's this line saying something about the comparison struck Eddie as deliciously funny, even though he had only the faintest notion of what a whore was. Uh, there's discussions about syphilis, leprosy, mm. tinnitus, the Bible, religion scraps of knowledge and rumor and so yeah they ha they have this very imperfect knowledge base but together they work towards developing a kind of bunch of different insights and skill sets and knowledge bases yeah. and that's how they defeat the monster by pooling their imperfect knowledge and each adding to a kind of another breakthrough as to what it is you know like uh, eddie's navigation ben's building schools the history of the town from mike Rich has got this spark of inspiration, builds the guts mm -hmm. and the heart, stands rationality, saves them on a couple of locations uh, of occasions. Mm. You know, they've each got and even Bev's sexuality, although I don't like that scene that we just nobody lost does. Time. They, they've each yeah. got nobody nobody does. But the point is that they've each got a part of the puzzle. Yeah, no, no, no nobody's getting on a good reads and saying that's their favourite scene. Nobody's <laughs> No, and if if they are, I don't want to know that person <laughs> to be frank. But um uh, and then just like one really nice one really nice thickening of this idea mm. that uh, again which is just in keeping with how many right steps king makes throughout this novel it's that lovely scene that really makes explicit the different layers of reality and belief and make believe and it's the bit where the losers are walking through the barrens mm. and they uh, we're not told that they're playing a make believe game but it becomes apparent they they're basically pretending to be explorers and encounter a man-eating tiger now in the world of the novel as we've seen so far that could actually be happening because mm -hmm. it could be a tiger but it's just it's just presented in a way that we know they're still kids even though they've got three layers of reality at least mm -hmm. there's there's day-to-day -day reality there's the fact that they are threatened by a supernatural being and yet there's still this brilliant brilliant murky bit in the middle where you can define your own reality with imagination and that's what the game of hunt the tiger is and go through the jungle and be explorers is it rings so true even in the middle of this traumatic summer these kids are still playing their games and still inventing and more importantly and i love that that they can they know the difference between as you say paying to see a monster in the cinema and seeing a monster in real life they they're still really into that kind of thing because they, they know this is controllable this is this this is not part of the other thing this is a very different thing yeah exactly so the the movie uh, the double bill the double bill at the aladdin and that tiger um explorer fantasy really speak to that and um of course with the tiger one suddenly the world of it does intrude on it because eddie sees you know it generated piranhas mm. and is suddenly in danger and he realizes that that is not part of the world they're creating with their game so again it 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 really it really works it talks about it, it's very convincing 
as a gang of children, it adds to the texture of the novel that it talks about these different layers of meaning. There's a couple of tiny places where King suddenly invests the kids with a little bit more than they should know. Mm. Well, we they're, so, the, they're, yeah. they're so fleeting. The turtle. We can say that's a turtle working through them, if you like. No, I, <laughs> I, I, I'm talking... Well, I, I, I've got a couple of things in mind that are just, to me, are just like... They, 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 it's very rare that things in it don't ring true, but there's there's a bit where Eddie goes back to Neibolt Street after seeing the real-life hobo. Yeah. And just before he meets the leper, he runs through this little fantasy about being a hobo. Oh yeah. What, what he's do, what is, what what he is doing is he's he's doing um something that's very human, which is he can't leave a fear alone. He he met a real life hobo mm-hmm. who looked like he had leprosy, who actually had syphilis, mm. and that's disturbed him, and he can't stop scratching at it. Which is why he goes back along the railroad tracks to Neibolt Street, and why he starts indulging in this little fantasy about being a hobo, and he just knows far too much jargon. Mm. And he knows far too much about being an adult. He he sounds too knowledgeable and wise to to indulge in that. I, I can just detect the author's pen in that. I get the that. author's hand in that fantasy. No, I appreciate that. I, I like the idea that he's such a strapped down, cloistered, closeted kind of kid that the this is like the ultimate fantasy. It might be something that he just thought a lot about with the idea of like escape. How do you maybe it, it's ju- it's just too skillful for Eddie's for Eddie at that point though it's something like it's sort of like yeah I'm a hobo I I jump the freight trains going to go down to Frisco going to eat me some beans from a can it's too skillful for Eddie it, it's <laughs> King putting too much color into Eddie's imagination for me and then there's another bit when they're down in the sewers actually actually heading for it for real mm. the first time as kids. Eddie just seems to know a little bit too much about municipal planning and the adult uh, and the world of adult industry for my liking. He sort of says, he says, uh, the pipes they're in are way too deep. He says something like, when you put in pipes this deep, you don't call it sewers, you call it a mine shaft. And I'm like, (laughs) I know Eddie knows about the geographical world and and uh, and he's got a compass in his head, but that that seems too knowledgeable. I get it. Those are just very rare. They're just rare missteps. That's me having a. (laughs) pop at SK rather than saying anything about the book. Oh, another interesting thing, going back to what you were saying about belief, is that none of these kids, and this is this is going to be good for you, because this is an opportunity for you to um, give the films another kicking, is that none of these kids like have like a religious life. There, there's no kind of faith in, there's no particular faith in God. Even though like Stan is a Jew, he seems to be a non-practicing Jew and all that stuff. And it's interesting that in the in the film they have, he's the son of a rabbi and that seems to give it like a really weird dimension it doesn't need because you you have the belief systems already established through them being children. The on, the only reason he's a rabbi, I think I talked about this last time, the only reason he's a rabbi in the uh, Stan's dad is a rabbi is is because some somebody at a committee meeting in Hollywood sat down and said, let's just jack everything up to 10. Not only if this kid is a lapsed Jew. What could what could be the ultimate what could be the ultimate the ultimate lever in his life the ultimate trigger for him you know what he's the son of the rabbi and he's not a good Jew and it leads nowhere it leads nowhere it's exactly the same instinct as making Henry the son of the cop it's like what could oh oh my God you know what would really play off against that he's the son of the goddamn sheriff and it's like it doesn't do anything it just it guys guys you've got a book here that really plays so many nice notes and doesn't play others. 
don't start filling in the notes it doesn't mm. play with clunkers. No, because absolutely. then you've got no you've got no air in the story. No. No, Henry's not the son of the sheriff. No, Stan is not the son of the <laughs> rabbi. You say they have. You say it's it, it's dumb. It ju- it just leaves no air, but um, and it doesn't do anything other than kill the story. But sure, but the, the idea of like the absence of an organized religion in this, because we we, we we kind of skirted around the idea like is this third concept beyond the turtle and beyond Pennywise? God is it meant to be? Because I mean that that kind of the, the classic end for a Stephen King book is oh it was the hand of God all along, or there is some. Like the sparrows taking George Stark away, you kind of think, oh, this is like some kind of punishment from the gods, essentially. Well, at, at least, at least they actually rip out a spider's heart. It's mm. not just a magic thing. Um, yeah, and God might be on their side in this, but it uh, God doesn't actually affect a big kind of yes. But it, God doesn't come and cart it off. They have to do it themselves. So it's it's be, it's okay in that respect. But um, but it's not like that. Religion is just one of the many things that floats around the kids' consciousness, consciousnesses in this half-grasped, you know, somewhat overheard way, because it's not like there's no religion. Stan does have a faint concept of being a Jew. Sure. Uh, he he has a little, he has a peculiarly Jewish memory, or, or sort of image comes to him at, at one point when they're down in its lair approaching its lair and he thinks of the golem oh yes which is mm-hmm. and 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 he knows a little bit about being a jew even if he's not one richie has some richie has quite a few discussions here and there about religion and faith and the bible he talks about the bible with bill ah. he also talks about being a catholic he he finds it weird that stan can't eat certain foods and then eddie and richie both sort of find that weird and then but he says would you eat fish on friday yeah yeah, and, and then Richie goes, God, no. Ah, I see what you're saying. So that, that so religion is just another one of the many things they the kids do discuss, even if they don't know much about it. It's not completely absent from, absent from their lives. But again, it just seems very convincing to me that they don't know much about sex. They don't know much about religion. These two big mysteries, but they do come into the story. They do inform the story a little bit. They do, they have a sense that Bill is good. A, like a white knight or a mystic thing um they also have uh oh there's a there's a yes that like they, they know there are bigger mysteries beyond them ben has a really interesting meditation on power mm, yes he Who thinks power what is power because they're they're trying they're, try, they're trying to uh they're trying to build their idea of what it is mm. to find out what the monster is and how they can attack it and they're always meditating on these big questions. What is reality? What is faith? What is power? What is, re- you know, they come at it from all these different angles and eventually they build towards something together. By the way, there's one, here's something you'll like, I think, a mm-hmm. lot. And I, uh, I know I could talk about this goddamn book forever. I do apologize, Richard, I'm sure. You've got time. Have other things time. To do. <laughs> well, here's, here's something that I'm, I'm really glad I remember because I love this bit. The building of the losers from, well, you know, uh, Ben meets um, Eddie and Bill. Bill and Eddie. Mm-hmm. That that's the first. That's the first coming together. I suppose you could, you know, where, where it starts to cohere and around a nucleus. And what does it cohere around? It coheres around this building of a dam. Yeah. Mm. And it's a lovely scene because it's. This is where we really get to meet a lot of the kids together. We see Bill and Eddie for the first time. 
really since the introduction of Bill at the start of the novel. Richie and Stan are about to join them, and it's the it's the start of something. Yeah, yeah. It's such a great image, the dam, mm-hmm. because all it because what they do. Oh, well, I'm going to stop you there. What, what they're actually doing is they're rebuilding a dam. They've tried to build a dam, Eddie and Bill, but it hasn't worked. Even even better because they yeah, yeah because they didn't have that skill set exactly. And so, so it's it's so, this is a this scene this scene which is a lengthy one and goes into flashbacks and tales and all sorts of things. It's such an important part of the book. It's um, you're right. Firstly, Eddie and Bill tried to build a dam for kicks, and it didn't do anything. The first lesson is that we're stronger when we work together and ultimately we're going to be strongest when we have all seven of us with all of our skill sets and then we're going to be able to really, really get going against it, yeah? But that's all nascent at the moment. Mm -hmm. So Bill is the next ingredient who shows them how to build the dam. But also, what are they doing? They're building a dam. What They're literally diverting the flow of something by placing a pebble up here which is going to dive a very small thing. They're going to put make their stake in the ground or make their stand, and that's going to divert the course of future events. Mm-hmm. And that's what the dam is. And it is. It took me a while, a few readings, to really, really consider how perfect an image that is for what the losers are. No, I like that a lot. And also, the creation of the dam is also destructive in its way. The the officer, the police officer, Nell tells them that you know people toilets might have overflowed and backed up a bit. And it's kind of inconvenient, but it's not the end of the world. It's something dirty, but you still have to kind of do it. You know, you still have to kind of get but, it. But it, but, but it, it does presage the end, of, the flood at the end as well. Exactly. Right. Yeah, it's idea like, like it's the, it, cleaning it away. It's all, it's all, and it's also a replacement for the sewers, which are tainted by it. It's the idea of like bringing water above ground, making it. The, the, again, this is one of these scenes that works on so many levels yeah. and is a, almost a microcosm for the book and contains so many themes of the book at once and it's such a skillful bit of story building and world building and um it, it, it you know it just does so much i'm in awe but there i think there is a line about you know i think eddie or somebody looks up at this uh, by the way it's the first time eddie ever feels anything of power mm. so it's the introduction of power to the book as well which ben will then later ruminate on and power gets discussed again and again but that I think that it, it, Eddie looks into himself and goes, what is this feeling? I've never felt a power. It's a feeling of power. But but I think there is a bit where one of them is going, my God, you know, we just put a few little things up there and it changed all of that. And it's done so nicely. The kids are so much fun to follow. Yeah. It's so great seeing them come and add their personalities until there are five of them working on it. You cannot get enough of these kids as characters. And yet, while all that's going on, all these themes are being put into place. All of these things are being presaged and built on. It's really remarkable mm. storytelling. And and also, if, if you like the, the metaphysical stuff, um, they also talk about the idea that the power can become uncontrollable. Like there's something else going on here. Like there's a, there's there's currents in the water they don't quite understand as well, which are also taking control of how the dam not only works but reshapes the environment around it, which they don't expect to happen, but it does. You know, in the in the end, they are going to have to build a dam, as it were, to stop it. You know, or they're going to have to they're going to have to intervene in the town's course. Mm. That you know, they are going to have to intervene in the town's natural course to stop it. 
and it will lead to destruction of the town. So yeah, it's all there. It's it's just that's the kind of stuff you live for <laughs> if you're writing. And like I, you know, if you can get something that does that much duty. A friend of mine, a writer friend, once described um, writing to me as three in one oil. Mm. Everything has to do three things at one time. It has to advance character. It has to advance plot. It has to advance theme. Mm. And this is like nine in one oil, this, <laughs> this whole extended passage. And it's it, 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 it's just such... We're all in awe, I promise you. We're all in awe. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, one thing I, I kind of I did want to ask you last time, but I, I don't know if it's a bit of a bit of a bit of a, a dick question, really. Um, Andy Stanton, you you, you write uh, children's books. I I kind of really have to ask: Have you ever thought about writing a horror novel? Because it seems like something you instinctively understand, and you're obviously a fan of the genre. Do you have like um? Do you have that in you? Do you, do you have? I'd love to. I, I, well, there, there's a couple of answers. <clears throat> Firstly, even more than writing, uh, sorry, uh, what, what really resonates is writing. No, I'll come to that in a second. Firstly, I would say that the fourth book in Mr. Gum is my Stephen King, Mr. Gum. <laughs> Which one? It's my Mr. Gum books about uh, Mr. Gum and the power crystals. I literally lifted an entire scene from Pet Cemetery. <laughs> For that, which if, if if you, I'll send you a copy of it, Richard, because uh, having so much fun on this, and uh, I, I do. You're I, lifting, yeah. <laughs> I, I I do a version of my cat, my heroine Polly, or to give her her full name, Jammy Grammy Lammy for Huffer for Huffer Berlin Stereo EO EO Lebsy Epnomonocular Strophet to Crespin to Crespin to Spespin to Vespin to Whoop to Loop to Brunkle Merry Christmas Lemoir, but everyone just calls her Polly. Polly's nine years old, and there's a bit where she has a dream in um. Mr. Gum and the Power Crystals, and she finds herself going to this spooky windmill, and then she wakes up in bed, and she's got pine needles. She, oh, it's just a dream. She's got pine needles and dirt on her feet. It's uh, just, um, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what it is? It's Louis. It's Louis um, <laughs> going to pass the deadfall at the start of Pet Cemetery. Just li- and the, the whole book was like, I want to write a silly horror story, and it's going to have and Stephen King's going to be my mentor there to get me through this, and. Um, but the, so the bigger answer is that comedy and horror have so much in common. Oh yes, I I once ran a um, <clears throat> ran some uh, a writing class for adults, teaching them to write kids' books. I had a few speakers in, uh, just did it for a term. I had some speakers in from time to time, and I had Charlie Higson in, who uh, you know from the Fast Show, and he's a fantastic novelist, and he's a brilliant young adult novelist. He wrote a great series of books called The Enemy, which is basically zombie books aimed for about 14 year olds and it's brilliant Mm -hmm. and he gave a very very fascinating talk and had an extended riff about how horror equals comedy basically you uh the the machinations are so in tune you build up these little scenes it's all about suspense and then reveal and you're looking for a scream in one instance and a laugh in another Mm. it's all about rhythm and release and that's what he said. Horror equals comedy. I can't say it better than that. And if you want to look at how that works, there's plenty of examples. You could look at um, the ones who re- the, the people who really brought that to the fore, uh, uh, the League of Gentlemen. Absolutely. They they found that lovely intersection between the two forms. And, you know, since then, it's kind of been open season. They weren't the first to do it, but I think they 
pushed it over the edge in the modern era. And I love horror, as you can tell. I love the rhythms of it. I would, I love the thrill of it. I love the build of it. And same when you're building a punchline, you know that you've got a real, uh, sorry, building to a punchline, you know that you've got a real kick at the end of it. And that's what you do with horror too, isn't it? Absolutely. It's a climax. So one day, yeah. one day. About the climax. It's a climax. And, and, it, and it's, a, yeah, and it's a series, it's a series of, you know, building and release, building and release, even more than any other. That, 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 yeah, that's it. <laughs> I, I love it. Well, I would love to even an Andy Stanton horror novel or a horror short story or anything. Well, I'll, I'll definitely send you the power crystals because you'll get a kick out of it. I'm sure my nephew and niece will as well. And that's very cool of you. Perfect. Thank you. And I, I, I know, again, I know I asked you this last time we spoke, but what are you reading at the moment? Oh, good question. Well, oh, I'm reading, <clears throat> I'm reading, uh, do you know Stanislaw Lem? Of course. Yeah. Ah, I've never read him before. You've read him. I, um, I'm reading his master's voice for a, a friend of mine's running a book club. And I, uh, is this what I answered last time? Nope. No, it's not. Um, I was reading East of Eden, I think. You were on a Steinbeck kick, I remember, yeah. And I'm, yeah, I'm looking forward to getting back to that. But I am, I am two-thirds of the way through His Master's Voice, and it it's really interesting. It's an amazing book so far. Good stuff. Have you, have you read a lot of him? Not really, no. Again, uh, sci-fi, much like the Dark Tower series, has always been something of a dead zone for me if i can staple yeah. another stephen king i mean i love jg ballard i love kind of the early stuff there but um a lot of it and frank herbert i read, read a lot of frank herbert when i was a kid uh-huh. uh, but uh, no and it's a lot of it leaves me quite i'm I, i'm i'm not a massive sci-fi fan my, my friend joel who runs this book club is addicted to sci-fi and idea the literature of ideas more than any other type of writing and I'm like, to me, I was like, kind of a category error. Literature's mm. about all sorts of things. But every, okay, Joel, you're going to pick another book. You're going to pick all the books. This is your book club. This is how it works. It's going to be another sci-fi book. Fine, I'll check in from time to time and see what's interesting. But he, he said I should read this one. And it's, um, it's, it's a real novel of ideas. It reads kind of like a 20th century updating of, um, very highly high style, highly stylized 19th century mm-hmm. kind of nineteenth um, century sort of high style recounting, but applied to a message from beyond the stars in the twentieth century. It's very interesting. Excellent. Okay, I was one to check out. Thank you very much, and thank you so much for joining me again, Andy. And again, well, I, I, thank I think you for having me again. Going to speak to you again soon, maybe about the stand. The stand is, <laughs> it's it's one of those ones. Yeah. It's always on my list to be read. I can always read the stand. Oh my! Again, there's I'm so a, much listen, call, in it. It's call me up whenever you need some more monsters slain. <laughs> I will. Thank you very much. I, th- I think we put this one to rest. <laughs> yes. Well, we'll find out in 27 years. We might do it again. <laughs> <laughs> Take care, Andy. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. Thank you very much for listening to the Constant Reader Podcast, hosted by me, Richard Shepard. Don't forget to rate, review, like, and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, and any other podcatcher you may use. And uh, with thanks to Stephen Parks for his production skills. And thank you very much.